In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about compass air bubbles, old man's beard, hand drill use in the UK, physical fitness for outdoor adventures, long log fire lays, when to use them, what's the right use, and can you get sparks from axes? Welcome, welcome to episode 33 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Thanks for joining me again. And it's another lovely summer's day. I found a nice, cool part of the woods and birdsong and insects and butterflies. And it's absolutely glorious out here today. Um, I thought I would just stop and record an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. I'm trying to get through the questions. I've got a backlog. I always seem to have a backlog and we've got some more good ones. And I'm just trying to do this in amongst teaching some courses through the summer. So help as many people as possible with their bushcraft and survival skills and just generally in their outdoor life. So without further ado, I'm just going to crack straight on. And um, the first one is about compass air bubbles. And this is a question from Tim Ball. And Tim asks, I have a number of silver compasses. Unfortunately, my small Silver Ranger SL has developed an air bubble. Will this have a detrimental effect on the operation of the compass? And can I prevent it happening on to my other compasses? Best regards, Tim. Um, well, air bubbles can occur for a number of reasons but it's normally due to some air pressure difference on the outside versus the inside it can be due to just a bad seal with some of the liquid that's inside the compass evaporating and that being replaced by air but it often occurs if you travel by plane and your compass goes into the hold the differential in air pressures between normal atmospheric pressure and uh, the pressure in the hold can be enough to create an air bubble. Um, that, that's sometimes when it can happen. Other times it just seems to be somewhat inexplicable. Either way, um, what I would always recommend for people is with sensitive instruments like a compass, and it is a sensitive instrument, it's important that it stays properly functional. Take it in your hand luggage if you're traveling by plane and have a case for it that protects it, some sort of little padded Velcro case at least, that um, you know Velcro closing, Cordura cover, a little bit of padding, something like that. You can buy for a few pounds or a few dollars that will protect your investment and protect you in terms of it still performing as well as it should. Also carry it in your hand luggage to minimize the chances of air bubbles from those pre pressure differences. If you do get a bubble, it's not always the end of the world, but basically what you need to be aware of is that any liquid has a surface tension and it's what allows pond skaters to move around on top of water because they don't weigh very much. It's what allows bubbles to form when you blow bubbles. Um, and what can happen is that the meniscus, the sticky bit of the outside, if you like, of the bubble can stick to the needle and cause the needle to pull the needle slightly off where the local magnetic field 
would be pulling it and where it would be aligning so it can cause the compass needle to be slightly off and that's the major issue with having a bubble in your compass so if it's a, a you know if it's anything other than a tiny bubble then maybe i would look at having it repaired or replaced because at the end of the day yes compasses are expensive but it's your life that's potentially at risk if they're not performing properly. Is it going to throw the compass needle off so much that you're, you fall off a cliff or get completely lost? It depends where you're going, really, and how much you need to rely on it. Um, so if you think, you know, compare it to a compass that's working fine, a compass with a bubble in, if it's pulling the needle off where it should be significantly, then maybe think about replacing it or, or having it refilled. Next one, old man's beard. This is a question from Isa, a good friend Isa. His question is, what is old man's beard? I've noticed some people use the term to refer to Spanish moss, while others use it to mean usnea or even clematis. Usnea is a, a species of um, lichen. I don't know which is correct. Thank you. Well, I said they're all correct. Um, common names are common names and they can be applied to anything and different things can be called the same common name and the same species can have different common names in different places. Even within a country there can be regional common names so there's always a danger with common names that there's some, going to be some confusion. So to avoid the confusion use the Latin name. So yes various tree hanging Usnea and Alectoria lichens are called old man's beard. Different species in different places. Clematis, downy seed head, that is also valid to call that old man's beard and other types of moss also old man's beard. So if you want to refer to a specific one and avoid any sort of confusion or any sort of ambiguity use the Latin name and you know I get a lot of students coming from Europe in particular, coming from uh, the Netherlands, coming from Belgium, coming from Italy and Germany and Austria, Spain, coming to do courses with me in the UK. I have to use the Latin names because the English common names mean nothing to these people and there may be great common names. I, I love particularly some of the German uh, common names for species. They're very descriptive but again we don't know them. so. Um, you have to know the Latin names and you have to be able to converse in them. That then allows uh, a one-to-one -one relationship between what you mean and what the other person understands by the words that you're using. That's why those scientific names exist. Right. Next one. Hand drill use in the UK. This is from Nick Rush. Hi Paul, I've been studying bushcraft for about five years and recently have been looking at hand drill use. I've had mixed results and have found that the moisture content in the materials seems to be a key factor in success and I'm testing moisture with a moisture meter. When the materials were stored in a shed or a house, the results were good. As soon as those materials were taken into the outdoors, the success rate went down. What are your thoughts on whether or not this technique would have been practiced in this country in the past, or is it a technique for warmer, drier climates? Thanks, Nick. Well, there are sort of multiple questions in there and multiple points that I probably need to make as a result of that question. The first one is, um, 
And it's the same with bow drill. I hear about people storing wood in their garage or in their shed or in their house and then using it to practice the skills. Um, while it can be useful to practice the technique as you build up, um, how shall we say, a knowledge of just the mechanics, whether it's bow drill or hand drill, and to build confidence in your ability to create an ember, it can be useful, but ultimately it's not much use if you can only ever light a fire by friction with materials that have been stored and seasoned inside, because the real value in these skills is your ability to go into nature and select the materials that you need and to make the bow drill set or the hand drill materials, the hand drill set, particularly the hand drill, and then use that subsequently while still in that natural environment. If you're going to make it at home and take it with you, frankly, you might as well just take a couple of fire steels with you. And um, if you're intentionally taking it with you, then you, you're sort of missing the point in terms of the modern application of these techniques um, because you've got a range of things you can choose to take with you. Um, ultimately, what I would like anybody who learns bow drill to be able to do is to go into their local environment and to be able to locate and identify the relevant species that they can use for, for bow drill and that they can then fashion the items that they need the spindle, the hearthboard, the bearing block, the bow in the field and make fire there and then once they've collected an appropriate tinder material as well. That's the real value of that skill and it's always been the real value of that skill. Similarly with hand drill, the difference with hand drill is that you typically, if you look at indigenous peoples and you refer to warmer, drier climates, but if you look at indigenous peoples who use hand drill, that we know use hand drill, whether they're in Africa or in uh, Australia in particular, but other parts of the world as well, they typically carry the, the drill with them because it's something that they make and then carry with them. Um, and of course, going back to our point about if you're going to choose to carry something with you, why not carry a modern device? Well, that's a valid question and a valid response maybe would be, well, I know I'm going to need a fire, I'm going to take a, a Swedish fire steel with me and I'm going to take a cigarette lighter with me for backup. I don't think there's anything invalid with that if you know you need a fire. But equally, if you're out in the field and you know you need a fire in a few days time and you've only got a few matches left, then why not make a hand drill and use your matches um, you need a fire typically to straighten a hand drill anyway. Um, so that there's an, almost an assumption there. If you're making a really good hand drill, um, whether it's in uh, the UK or whether it's in, uh, say, Tanzania, where I've got some experience of spending time with indigenous peoples who use hand drills still, um, you go and collect the material, you collect it green, you scrape the bark off, you straighten it, just like you'd straighten an arrow, making an arrow in the field, you straighten it, often using heat of a fire, you dry it, and then you carry it with you and use it as and when. So it becomes a piece of equipment that you carry with you, but it's a piece of equipment you can make in the field. And I think that's one of the nice things about hand drill. And they tend to last longer than bow drill sets. Once you've got the hand drill, it lasts a long time because the embers are smaller, the amount of material you're wearing off the bottom is quite small, and you've created something that's quite long. So you're incrementally shortening it by only a very small amount. It's going to last you a long time. Um, can it be used in the UK? 
Absolutely. Um, it's something I teach on my intermediate course. Um, students typically are able to create an ember um, during that course, even if they're having to pair up with a, a partner to do it. Um, and that's down to hand conditioning rather than technique. Um, the, 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 the bottleneck in terms of learning hand drill is how tough your hands are. And it once your hands get um, hot spots or they get blistered, you need to let them recover. Um, so what you want to be doing when you're practicing is to build up slowly and by all means do that at home, do that in your garden, do a little bit every day, do a bit every week. If your hands get sore, let them recover for a few days, go back and over time they'll become conditioned. Then you can go and do it in the field. So there's no issue with me, you know, as far as I'm concerned, of get some materials, season them at home, use them, condition your hands, build up technique, build up specific fitness in terms of grip strength, forearms, triceps, shoulders, get the technique right, all of that. And then you can extend to doing it in the field. Whether or not it was ever used here in the UK by indigenous peoples, I don't know. Um, the problem with a piece of elder that's been straightened, for example, is that doesn't leave a lot of trace in the archeological record. Um, and even if archeologists might have found a bit of elder in the past, and that's a very good native um, species for making hand drills from. Would they have recognized it as a hand drill? I don't know. So it's hard to say, but is it is it um, possible to make a hand drill and use it all in the field here in the UK? Absolutely. Um, so if we'd migrated or our ancestors had migrated from places where hand drill was used and that knowledge was retained, it's possible it was used here. But who knows? I don't know for certain. All I know is that it does work here and it's certainly something worth persevering with if you've got a serious interest in uh, bush skills which are applicable in the UK and Northern Europe in terms of your question and more generally it's, um, it's a good skill to have. Learning fire by friction as I said before improves every aspect of your fire lighting even if you're using a modern fire steel, ferro rod, cigarette lighter, matches, magnifying glass, whatever it is, that ability to take a small smouldering ember to a flame, to an established fire, makes every aspect of your fire skills better. And that can only be a good thing. Physical fitness. This is a question from James de Ferras. And his question is, Hello Paul, uh, I'd like to say I'm very appreciative of all your hard work. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, James. Very, very welcome. I do enjoy doing these and I'm glad I've got on a, a roll with making the Ask Paul Kirtley uh, podcasts and videos again after a bit of a hiatus back in June. Um, but hopefully some of you are um, getting the benefits of what diverted me in, in the form of my online elementary course. I know some of you are in that already. And if you don't know about that, get on my blog mailing list because um, I will be mailing out more details about that over time. Um, if you want to learn more skills and it's, it's the gold standard in distributed bushcraft learning now. Um, if you want to learn skills and you can't come on a course with me, you want to learn from me, have a look at the online elementary because there's a lot of good stuff in there. And even if you can come and do a course with me, one of the things I can do with an online course is we can look at a leaf shelter in a forest in England in July 
and then we in the next video can go and have a look at a snow shelter in Sweden in February applying some of the same principles but in a different environment in a different season at a different latitude um, and until somebody invents a teleporter or a time machine um, that's not something we're ever going to be able to do on a physical course so there are some advantages and then you can watch them over and over again um, rather than having to come on a course scribble notes down and then go home and practice anyway with some of the skills um, you can watch the videos at home in your own time without having to take time off work and learn those skills in your own time and then if you've got questions shoot me a shoot me a question and ask Paul Kirtley and there's a forum in the uh, in the course as well so hopefully some of you are benefiting from that I know some of you are but some of some more of you will benefit um, soon by uh, by finding out about that um, but in the meantime happy to ask happy to answer lots of questions any questions that you guys are going to ask and hopefully that helps so this is a question from uh, James uh, about physical fitness um, he also has quite a nice definition of bushcraft here. He goes, I understand your approach to bushcraft is to bring us closer to nature and that this is not primarily about knives, tools, tarps or other gear, but enhancing our skills and knowledge so that we benefit from a more immediate relationship with the natural world. How is that for a definition? I like that definition a lot, James. It's very good. Um, however, my real question and observation is in teaching skills we have had very little discussion of maintaining your personal physical fitness i would say that one of the most important requirements for successful life in the outdoors is physical toughness nature is tough and we need resilience to enjoy it so what approach do you recommend to us in our office bound lives and when out on a trip what do you recommend well, that question's from a while ago, James, and apologies for taking a while to answer it, but um, I think it's a very good question and it's um, one that's certainly worth discussing here. Um, a few things first. Yes, the fitter you are, uh, and we'll discuss what we mean about fitness shortly, um, the fitter you are, probably the more comfortable you're going to be doing a certain amount of physical work in the outdoors people who are not so physically fit they come on a course for example or come on a trip and they may find it quite tiring compared to somebody who's more physically fit that said we need to ask the question what do we mean by physical fitness physical fitness is quite specific somebody who's an olympic lifter is physically fit they're physically fit to lift big weights someone who's an 800 meter runner is physically fit particularly if they're competing at a high level but they're not fit for the same things and um, you know a marathon runner is fit in a different way to a sprinter yes some of it's genetics some of it's uh, fast twitch muscles versus slow twitch muscles the pigeon just landed and took, took off there um, some of it's genetics some of it's muscle makeup some of its training um, but most of us are not going to be competing in anything at an international standard or uh, even maybe a national standard um, but we can still be fit we can still have a good general level of fitness particularly in terms of enjoying our outdoor life and extending our life as a whole I would say walking 
just generally is a very good baseline thing to be doing to maintain good cardiovascular fitness but also just being on your feet all day. When you're outdoors you tend to be on your feet, you're doing things around camp, you're collecting firewood, you're actually hiking from A to B, you're carrying a rucksack, hiking from A to B, walking is a good thing. So going out on a regular or semi-regular basis, um, doing some hill walking, just generally, before we talk about specific training, just going out for the day for a walk, taking a day pack, taking some lunch, waterproofs, water bottle, sandwiches, those sorts of things, a few kilos on your back, going for a walk for four or five hours, a few hours in the morning, stop for lunch, a few hours in the afternoon, Doing that every couple of weekends is going to help keep your overall physical fitness. Doing it more often clearly is good. Going for shorter walks, doing a bit of walking every other day, for example, for 30 minutes or an hour, is proven to enhance your cardiovascular health, um, your specific muscle conditioning, particularly your calves. And as soon as you start going onto hills, you start um, exercising your quads and your glutes and your hamstrings more as well as your calves so one of the things that I used to do when living in town um, for a while I lived up near Alexandra Palace in North London this is sort of 15 years ago um, there's quite a steep hill in that park and I would take a, a day pack I would put um, some bottles of water in my day pack and I would walk up and down the hill. I mean, sure, some of the other park users maybe thought I was a bit strange, but you see people doing all sorts of strange exercises in parks and towns, so it, that doesn't really matter. You know, you see people doing everything from sort of Tai Chi to yoga to, uh, you know, football training, running around things, and, you know, all sorts of stuff you see people doing. So I used to just find a hill and walk up and down it. And whether you're in the countryside or in town, if you can find a hill away from fumes away from traffic for safety and for you know lung health reasons find a hill walk up and down it um you know eight nine ten times for example if it takes you about a minute and a half to walk up it you know you've got some good cardiovascular training you can walk up to top you recover when you're walking down and even that's working the stabilization muscles then when you come to do your longer hikes you've got that fitness particularly when you come to more hilly sections and that's something that you can develop you can walk up faster you can find a longer hill you can carry heavy weight so that's a good training method doing those hill repeats i think are good um, Running is, is as long as you've got, as long as you look after your, your knees and your, and your ankles. Um, running can be good just for overall cardiovascular health. You can do it pretty much anywhere. You know, even if you travel quite a lot for work, you can take some running gear, go out for a run, or you know, just go to the gym. Um, I know gyms are a bit boring for some people, but just having some basic strength, so doing some basic strength work in the gym um, as well as some cardio sometimes um, and I would concentrate on doing some strength work for a period of time maybe three to four months of the year concentrate on working on your strength um, development and then just maintain that for the rest of the year that's something you could do in the winter when you're outside less maybe most people are outside less in the winter strength work over the winter and then you can then develop cardio over the summer months go to the gym once a week to maintain your strength and the good thing about having an increased level of strength is that it reduces your propensity for injuries which is always good in the outdoors um, you know it doesn't mean to say that you should push it in terms of lifting things you shouldn't lift and 
carrying things on expeditions that you should be carrying between two of you but it just does reduce the chances of injury having a having a higher level of strength and muscular conditioning from that perspective um, and then concentrate on running and, and walking um, of course you can do other things like going to the climbing wall that's something that I enjoy doing and it helps keep your upper body strength um, and that's useful for using everything from using axes to canoeing um, and then of course doing the particular activities fitness tends to be quite specific to the activity so having an overall level of reasonable strength reasonability to carry yourself and a load is useful outdoors so running hiking bit of strength work in the winter that's all good and then do the activities that you enjoy and try and do them relatively regularly go canoeing um, go climbing go walking um, go cycling even if you're doing a bit of that and then a bit of that and a bit of that having a generally active lifestyle is is good then when it comes to chopping up some firewood or paddling a canoe for a week or two or um, carrying canoes on a portage or going to do um, some ski touring or walking on snowshoes it's not as much of a shock to your system then of course you can do some specific training like if you know you're going to do a really hard cross-country ski tour you can do specific training for that everything from getting on cross trainers in the gym um, through to dragging tires around the park whatever it is that you need to do in terms of specific fitness you can add on top of that baseline fitness but i would just say have a good baseline level of strength cardio and then build specific fitness on top of that and you can build specific fitness just by doing the activities and then of course you might just need to make sure that you're maintaining mobility and flexibility so doing relevant stretching exercises and mobility exercises um, that is also important particularly if you're sitting a lot during your day-to-day -day working life having um, the right range of movement in your hips and in your legs and your lower back is important because then when you come to walking hiking canoeing you've got the range of movement you should have for those things as well so that's my general recommendations of course we could dive into that more deeply um, but that that's what i would say long log fire lay this is from john carey and john says hi paul i stay in scotland and like to use a tarp for staying out and i tend to make a body length log fire in the winter would this be your suggested fire lay if not could you point me in the right direction would be much appreciated okay john um well john a lot of people talk about long log fires and they don't mean the classic long log fire. A long log fire um, in the classic northern forest sense is either two quite large diameter, maybe 10, 12, 14 inch, so sort of 30 to 35 centimeter diameter trees at least, two of those stacked on top of each other with a fire going in between them that gives off heat like a grill. I talked about that in one of my earlier podcasts, I think it was podcast six. Also, 
in the introduction to these uh, Ashpore Kirtleys, actually, there's a little clip of me lying down in front of one of those. So have a look on the next one that you watch um, or rewind to the beginning after this is finished. Um, that is a classic two log, long log fire. They're about seven feet long, at least logs and a large diameter. The other one is a three log, long log fire where you arrange them in a triangle, two logs at the base and then one above and then you need to have some spaces in there and it's normally the largest log which sits on the top. You light a fire between the two lower logs and once it's established you put the big log on the top. That burns faster and produces more smoke than the two log fire but it produces more heat in a given time period so you can choose. Now in terms of what most people do they don't they're not doing that they're not having to survive the night with no sleeping kit at minus 30 or minus 40 celsius what they're having to do is have a chilly damp night out in the woods in the UK or Northern Europe or North America where it might be frosty overnight, it might go slightly below zero or it might be around zero and quite damp and a heavy dew and they want to keep warm and so what they tend to do is have a fire and then extend it and put some smaller diameter materials on it and that might be outdoors or it might be inside an improvised shelter or it might be in front of a lean-to or it might be in front of a, a lean-to improvised with a tarp. That's all very very valid. I mean the thing there though is that you're going to have to put wood on more often but I would say particularly in places like Scotland and around the UK where most of the forestry is managed in some sort of way or at least it's been used um, you're not going to find old dead standing large diameter trees of the type you get in the boreal forest uh, deep in the boreal forest where nobody's been for decades um, you're just not going to find those trees where you where you're then allowed to chop them down and process them and do those long fires nor do you actually need them at the temperatures um, that you get often in the winter in the UK unless they're absolutely extremes. Um, so yeah, I would say have a nice, extend your fire, nice range in front of you, give you a good amount of heat, watch what firewood you're using. You don't want woods that spit too much, so sweet chestnut, some pines, they spit quite a lot. Um, particularly if you're using a tarp, you don't want embers hitting your tarp and burning holes in them. But yeah, that's a, it's a good way. And the only other thing I would say is just think about how much materials are there. I think it was, was it last week or the week before, there was a question about leave no trace versus um, bushcraft. And you do need to have some consideration about the level of impact you're having on an environment, both in terms of the resources that you're using. And one thing um, as well to think about in terms of burning firewood is that firewood is food for grubs and insects. It's a, an, it's a habitat for certain um, larva to live in and that then feeds birds. So we, if there isn't much dead standing or dead stuff lying around and you're hoovering it up and burning it, then you're diminishing that environment even more. And that's something to think about. Um, it might be better in some circumstances to take a warmer sleeping bag. But if you're going to have a fire, yeah, extend it out and you get nice heat from it. Last question. And this is from our old friend Dave Wellsby, who goes by the name of Wellsby Roots on Instagram. It's a question via Instagram. And he's got a picture of... <laughs> that's quite... A, this is not intentional. It's a picture of me chopping... Uh, some small branches off some spruce in the northern forest when I was building a lean-to shelter 
uh, and had a long log fire in front of it. So it's kind of coincidence given the context of the previous question. Um, there is an article on my blog about, or there's a couple of articles actually, but there's a, a, a couple of um, pieces on my blog and one specifically about building a lean-to and spending the night out in the northern forest uh, significantly below freezing with a long log fire and no sleeping kit. So that's in the context of the previous question, it's worth looking at those and I will link to those in in the show notes on the blog at paulcutley.co.uk. Just look out for episode 33. So Wellsby Roots' question, Dave Wellsby's question is somewhat different. Um, he's just using the axe as context. I was wondering if a Gransfors Brook small forest axe would make a spark when used with flint or chert. Thank you for the hard work. Um, typically, um, the back end, so the bit, not the tip, not the, the tip, the bit, um, of the axe, the cutting edge of the axe, that end is um, tempered differently, um, it's harder and the back end, so the bit around the eye and the pole uh, above the, the handle, um, that is typically of a hardness that would work to create a spark. Whether or not you want to be doing that regularly, um, I'm not sure because you will wear it, you know, if you use a flint and steel regularly, you do wear the edge off the steel, that's how it works. You're taking a very thin slither of uh, metal off and that hot spark then catches on your, on your tinder material. So yes, you could use an ax, but there's a more general point here. The more general point is, and I'm not having a go at Dave here. Dave, you ask a lot of questions and it's good. I like people with curious minds. But what I would say is, if I wanted to know the answer to that question, I would just go and try it myself. Um, and that's, you know, that sort of does me out of a Q&A show in some ways. And I know you're trying to shortcut knowledge here with a lot of the questions, you know, all of you. So this isn't aimed specifically at Dave. But please do just go and try things. You know, clearly, you know, we've had questions in the past few weeks about being a bit afraid of uh, trying wild edibles and we've had questions about fungi in the past and various things. Of course, you need to be very, very careful about that. You can't just try wild edibles necessarily at random um, with impunity. But in terms of will something with something create a spark? Does this wood work for bow drill? Just try it. You know, but you will learn so much more by trying these things than you will by, um, by asking somebody else. At the end of the day, all of the stuff, all the knowledge that we talk about here is practical knowledge. And I, again, Dave, you're a good friend on the internet. I'm not at all having a go at you, Dave. I'm just using this question to instigate a, a general point um, because I see it in a number of questions that have come over recent months and also that are waiting to be answered um, of people asking me about things that they could actually try themselves. And to me, that suggests that they don't view the knowledge necessarily as a practical knowledge, that it's theoretical. Um, to make the most of a lot of these skills, you have to try them. You have, to, it's, it's not enough. If you want to light fire by friction, for example, and we use this as an example a lot, if you want to light fire by friction, it's not enough just to understand the concept. 
you won't be as good at it as somebody who's practiced it. You won't be as good at it as somebody who's tried lots of different woods um, and has the experience of the different feels, the different textures, the different fibrosity of the different species. They know how to adjust things and you know, a bit harder of this and a bit softer of this and the relative hardness of different woods for bearing blocks and how tight they need to have the string. All of those things comes from experience. You can't teach it in a in a way that where you cover every single eventuality, different levels of moisture. We've had questions about that in the past with, with friction fire lighting. Um, all of that sort of stuff you get over time through experience. So please do ask questions, but please also question yourself. Is this something I can just go and try? And if it isn't something I can go and try, if you're asking a question about you know, what woods can I use in the Amazon for friction fire lighting? Why are you asking that question? Why are you asking it of yourself? Why are you asking it of me? If it's a theoretical question and you're never going to the Amazon, then why ask it? If you are going to the Amazon, then do your research and get there early and practice. By all means, it depends what you're trying to do. But the point is, you know, question your own questioning. Think about why you're asking a question and what is it that you're trying to achieve? Are you just trying to achieve a, a random accumulation of knowledge or are you actually trying to achieve an applicable level of knowledge? And I would always encourage people to achieve an applicable level of knowledge in their own environment and then you can extend outwards as you go to different places, if you go to different places. Applicable, experienced, knowledge, practice is much more valuable than a library full of books and some theoretical knowledge but never having your hands on these things, never having your hands on the plants and feeling the texture, understanding how to recognize them in the field, understanding how to make things in the field. That at the end of the day is the, is the goal of these, of these skills. You should be able to go into the field and make them and, and make them work. Um, and it's not so much a rant or tell, telling people off. I just want to encourage you to make the most of this knowledge set. It's not enough just to sit in front of your phone or your computer and watch these videos that I make and think that you're going to be able to go out and apply what it is that I'm talking about. The reason I can talk about these things is because I've done them and if I haven't done something else, say I haven't tried that, I haven't used that, I don't have that experience, I'll find out, I'll talk to somebody else, I will go and try myself. Um, and you should do the same. Um, take responsibility for your own learning. By all means ask me questions and the best questions you can ask me is when you've gone out and tried something already you've got stuck with it or you know it might be I, I read an article or watched a video of you doing this thing feather sticks or building a shelter or whatever it is I went and tried it it didn't work it didn't work in the way you described I had difficulty with this aspect I couldn't get the shavings to do this I couldn't carve it in this way I couldn't get it to light um, in these conditions and then ask me a question because you're then and then helping you solve a problem with a practical thing that you're learning to do. Um, if you just ask me some general random questions, that's of much less value. Um, so I'm just trying to encourage more people to get out and try these things, and then when they come to sticking points, come back with questions and then go back and try again. 
The best people who work for me on the courses are people who have taken responsibility for their own learning and they come to me with questions when they get stuck, but they're practicing, 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 practicing um, with things until they make them their own. And I encourage you, Dave and whoever else, Isa and all the people who are asking lots and lots of questions, make these things your own. Practice, practice, practice. And that's the only way that these skills will survive. They won't survive as theoretical knowledge. They'll survive as practical knowledge. And that's what um, we all want. So it, it, it's, uh, it's not telling off. It sounds a little bit like that at times, but it's not. I just want to encourage people to actually just go and use this stuff. Go and practice it. Practice it in your backyard. Practice it in the woods. It's an iterative process. Again, that's the other thing that people don't realize that you're not going to go from zero to 100% with pretty much any of these skills, whether it's tree and plant identification, fungi identification, natural navigation, carving, feather sticks, bow drill, hand drill, tracking, whatever it is, you're going to take time and you will get things wrong along the way and you will iterate, you'll go back, you will, over time, you will sequentially move up, but you can't do that in a vacuum. You have to do it with some pushback from nature, you know, wet conditions for lighting fires, odd tracks that you don't recognize, unusual plants that you haven't seen before, just keep pushing those boundaries um, for yourself. And when you've got something that doesn't work, when you've got a problem that you can't work out, when something your experience disagrees with my statement of my experience, come back because that's where things will really, will really extend. But knocking a piece of flint on an axe, that's something you could try yourself. All right, that brings me to the end of this episode. So thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you for watching. If you've got any comments, YouTube, usual spot, underneath the audio or video on my blog, episode 33. As per usual, let me know what you think. If you haven't left a rating or a review on the platform that you listen to this on, if you listen to this as an audio platform, please do. And especially for Mr. Richard Marples is some extra bass at the end of this. He loves the bass at the beginning. He tells me that it rattles his doors as he's driving to work. Here's the music with the bass cranked up even more. Take care and see you on the next episode. Bye.